AI. Happy Easter and happy belated Passover. I'm your host, David Brand, and I'm joined remotely by my co-host, Jeff Simmons, and our news correspondent, Celeste Katz-Marston. So you got a little sneak preview uh, before the theme music played of a big show we have on tap today. We're featuring interviews with uh, Bishop Nicholas DiMarzio, the head of the Brooklyn Diocese, who will discuss the impact of the coronavirus on the Catholic Church in Brooklyn and Queens. Bita Mustofi, Commissioner of the Mayor's Office of Immigrant Affairs, will talk about the city's annual Immigrant Heritage Week, which kicks off tomorrow. She'll also talk about how the city is serving immigrants during this economic and public health crisis. Then we'll shift gears a bit with three segments exploring the impact of the coronavirus on New Yorkers experiencing homelessness. Our news correspondent, Celeste Katz-Marston, will present the latest installment in her series, New York in Crisis, WBAI's Coronavirus Diary. I will talk with former City Council Speaker Christine Quinn, who now serves as President and CEO of WIN, Women in Need, the city's largest family shelter provider. And finally, our last segment features an interview with Felix Guzman, an activist with the organization Vocal New York. Guzman has himself experienced homelessness and now works to champion the rights of other New Yorkers in that situation. So let's get things started with my interview with Bishop Nicholas DiMarzio, head of the Brooklyn Diocese. He oversees all Roman Catholic institutions in Queens and Brooklyn, and he spoke with us ahead of Easter. Here's that interview. Well, Bishop Nicholas DiMarzio, welcome to City Watch on WBAI, and happy Easter. Good to be with you. What does it mean for the church to have to cancel in-person Mass on, on Easter Sunday, the holiest day of the year? Well, it's an extraordinary experience for us here in the United States. Unfortunately, other Christians and Catholics have undergone this problem in wartime. But we really are under a, kind of a, a siege. It's the coronavirus. It's, it's, a, it's almost like a war. This is how drastic it is that we cannot even celebrate the most important uh, feast of our, of, our, of our year together. But uh, again, we have to survive this, and we won't get beyond it. How have parishioners responded and supported one another during this challenging time? Well, people of New York are resilient. We've gone through 9-11, Sandy, and now this. I think uh, our people are used to uh, coming back after difficult circumstances. They're supportive of one another, although New Yorkers sometimes seem to others to be gruff and uh, short. But temper, they, when there is a tragedy, when there's something that needs to be done, they, they, they really get together and do it. So I, I see that happening now. What is your message to New Yorkers on Easter? Well, again, a message of hope. That's what Easter is about. It's, it's a hope. It's the conquering of, of death and the resurrection. And so there's nothing more terrible for the human person than death itself. No, there is an answer to that. That Jesus gives us the hope that each one of us will rise from the dead, as uh, He has promised us. In our dying, we we find a new life, and that's what uh, we have to understand. Many people during these days of mourning, people have lost. Uh, that, uh, just like 9/11, it's mm. going to be difficult for anyone not to know somebody who died during this time. 9/11, uh, with the over 3,000 people who died left a mark on New York uh, because we all knew some connection and it's the same thing now, I think. And there there have already been, there's been several parishioners, I imagine, who have died and also two priests in the Brooklyn Diocese, correct? We will have memories uh, that will last a long time. Well, Bishop DiMarzio, thank you for joining us today. You're welcome. Easter Sunday on City Watch. Okay. That was Brooklyn Diocese Bishop Nicholas DiMarzio discussing the coronavirus' impact on the Catholic Church in New York City. We live in a city of immigrants. According to the Mayor's Office of Immigrant Affairs, New York City has over 3.1 million residents born in another country. That's more people than the entire population of 20 states. Each year, New York City celebrates our rich multicultural history during Immigrant Heritage Week. The initiative usually consists of gatherings, festivals, and other in-person events, but starting tomorrow, Immigrant Heritage Week is going virtual. I spoke with Mayor's Office of Immigrant Affairs Commissioner Bita Mostofi about the initiative and about what the city is doing to support immigrants who are disproportionately impacted by the coronavirus, and yet in many cases don't qualify for federal and state relief. Here's that interview. Commissioner Bita Mostofi, thank you for joining City Watch. Thanks for having me. 
So we're about to begin Immigrant Heritage Week here in New York City. It's an annual series of events and programs to commemorate the legacy of April 17, 1907, the day in New York City history that the largest number of immigrants, uh, it was 11,000, entered the United States through Ellis Island. This is usually a time for dynamic in-person activities. What will this year's Immigrant Heritage Week look like? Yeah, so um, thank you again for having me. And, um, you know, we use this week as an opportunity every year to um, shed a little light on our incredible diversity in our city, celebrate that history and heritage, but also who we are as New Yorkers and um, both what the contributions of our communities are, but also how it helps to define us as a city. And so um, this year we're, we're having to adjust um, at this moment in time when our city is on pause and we're exercising our physical distance from each other. Um, but we thought it was that much more important uh, to highlight immigrant New Yorkers when, you know, when we think about who's on the front lines of our response against COVID-19, we know that over half are immigrants, healthcare workers, cleaning service professionals, food and drugstore uh, workforces. And um, I think that really speaks to how intertwined and connected um, we all are, regardless of our migration stories and uh, where we came from. So we're using this week as a way to uh, shine a little light both on individual stories, but also on those who are at the front lines at this moment. And from us um, in the Mayor's Office of Immigrant Affairs and in the de Blasio administration to say a little bit of a thank you to all those folks. And so these will be digital programs or online programs? Yeah, we'll, we um, have a series of uh, stories that we'll tell from uh, immigrant New Yorkers, um, do a few spotlights um, from across uh, the city of, of individuals and in, in our administration and our Department of Health and others who are of immigrant heritage. Um, and so most of this will be online and um, shareable. And, and uh, we hope that people take a moment to appreciate just, again, how interconnected we are and how much our story and um, our resilience as a city is dependent upon our immigration history. Um, the coronavirus is having a particular impact on immigrant communities, specifically in Elmhurst, Corona, and Jackson Heights. Uh, what is the city doing now to serve these communities, and uh, what does the city need to do better to to better serve them after this current crisis subsides? Um, you know, I think, uh, you know, first and foremost, I want to underscore how just hugely tragic and um, horrible. I know the pandemic has been in so many parts of the city. And as you know, um, in particular, in um, our immigrant dense communities of Queens and um, you, what one of the things that we've been trying to ensure we're, we're doing effectively and, and trying to adjust to even be better at this is just making sure we're reaching people and we're communicating with folks in their language um, and in various ways uh despite sort of that that distance. And so um, our team has been working really closely with the Department of Health, with City Hall, with others at the emergency management offices. And um, we're, we're increasingly pushing out more and more and um, greater content in language um, in various languages. In the Department of Health, we're now up to 25 languages we're pushing content out in. Our teams are daily engaging with community leaders, faith leaders, community members through different chat um, and digital spaces. Um, we're in regular contact on the ground. We're increasing the number of um, advice, but also communication to community and ethnic media. So there's definitely a number of things that we know we need to be doing more of and better around, but those are some of the ways we've been responsive. And additionally, um, we've lifted up on our website, nyc.gov immigrants, um, a virtual resource guide um, for immigrants. Um, and so we know there's lots of questions, everything from the healthcare side, but also um, the devastation that, that families are experiencing in other ways. And so we are making available in sort of one place answers to many of those questions, be it a worker, food insecurity, education, or more. And so um, that's available and that's 
translated and being translated to even more languages. Um, and we're going to continue to look at better ways of reaching our communities. We, we had schools chancellor Richard Carranza on the show a couple weeks ago, and he quoted or paraphrased Winston Churchill to say, uh, let no good crisis go to waste. Um, and so I wonder what what you think the city is learning from this crisis about better serving uh, immigrant communities, especially in, in the in those communities that have been most impacted so far. Um, yeah, I think that's a great um, quote in this moment in time. And I would would un, would sort of add to that by saying a couple of things. One is that, um, you know, some of this we we know. Some of this has been a big part of what we as an administration have been trying to address, but the gravity and scale of the the um, inequality and injustice across communities, and in particular communities of color, is so great. That's why last August we launched for the first time our NYC Care Program, which is a health, guaranteed health care for all New Yorkers, regardless of your ability to pay or your immigration status. And, um, you know, we've lucky in that we've rolled this out now in, in the Bronx. We just rolled this out a couple of months ago in Brooklyn and Staten Island. Um, and we're looking for full city rollout um, in the coming months. And so I think, um, you know, our a recognition that as a nation that we are not addressing some of the underlying issues that communities of color face due to inequality, due to injustice, illnesses that are not getting treated um, because people don't have access to health insurance or, or primary uh, physicians or health care providers. This has to change for us as a nation. And, um, you know, I think I'm, I'm proud to say that we're doing that as New Yorkers, um, but certainly need to double down on, on making those uh, programs accessible and successful for communities. And, you know, even more than that, I think it's a moment in time to recognize that so many of these workers are undocumented. So many of these workers have been left out of our immigration system um, and the, the reliance that we all have on their workforce, not recognized or undervalued. And so um, this is a moment in time where we've yet again seen the federal government leave uh, workers out of the federal stimulus, ones that are actually critical to the food chain in our country. Um, and we need to keep fighting. We need to do better for these communities and these families. In New York City, mixed status households uh, comprise a, a million people. Um, when maybe a parent is undocumented, but a child uh, is a citizen or a, 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 a documented resident of the United States. Exactly. So a mixed status household could be a number of different immigration statuses with, under one roof. And um, even those families are left out of the federal stimulus. Um, and uh, that means hundreds of thousands of young people um, as well who are impacted by these decisions that have chosen to disregard the realities of who our, our communities, people, and workforce are and the lifeblood or be beating heart of, in many ways, our response to moments like this where we're so dependent on the people who are part of those food chains, are part of our health delivery services, our domestic services. Yeah, there's a great article in, in, on City Limits or Tavian Nance on Saturday, so this morning, it came out just about how undocumented immigrants are uh, feeling left out and are certainly left out of federal and state relief packages. And many of these people are frontline workers, chefs, delivery workers, home health aid. How is the city stepping up to help people who are left behind it from federal and state relief? Yeah, thanks for the question. So I think a couple of ways and a, and a recognition that um, at the top of the list is continued advocacy, right? We don't think... Um, uh, that decision was the right decision. And we know it's left so many behind. So we're continuing to advocate um, at the federal level for new um, new legislation that addresses these really important um, and critical gaps. But beyond that, so healthcare and health provision, and I had mentioned this, is a number one priority for us as an administration. And it has been and continues to be. And we want to make sure that nobody is left out of the care that they need um, and isn't able to access the supports that they need. And our incredible health and hospital system is really driving that work and anyone can seek care there. 
Additionally, you've heard, uh, many have heard the mayor say this consistently. We are committed to making sure that people do not go hungry. We just announced uh, over $25 million um, expansion to uh, food programs across the city. We announced um, meals, up to three meals a day that can get picked up, grab and go at, at many of our uh, schools across the city. And we also have a meals delivery program that we are looking to further expand. So that's available to all New Yorkers, regardless, again, of immigration status um, and is such a critical, critical thing. Um, we've even looked at um, and have uh, uh, granted um, loans and um, uh, grants to small businesses who we know often employ so many of the workers that we're talking about as a way to allow them to continue their payrolls, um, to continue supporting folks at this moment in time and are looking at um, how we can further improve upon the federal government's uh, business administration payroll protection program to reach some of these exact businesses um, and these very essential uh, workers. Our city has tremendous paid sick leave laws. So again, enforcing those laws and, tr and ensuring that folks um, have access to the supports that they need, um, among others. So those are just a few of the things that we've made available. But again, I want to direct folks. We actually created a guide. We know how critical this is. We're getting so many different kinds of questions, rightfully. Um, but we created a guide for New Yorkers in different languages to be able to use that directs them to how they can seek this relief. You can go to our website, nyc.gov immigrants and access it there. Great. And we just have a few more moments. So I wanted to ask, how is COVID-19 affecting census outreach and response rates so far? Um, so we know that as a city, we received sort of the first response, uh, first sort of reporting around self-response rates. And um, and while it was greater than, than 10 years ago at this moment in time, we certainly know a lot more work needs to be done. And the kind of outreach and engagement that we had um, invested tremendously in uh, is certainly not able to happen in terms of community uh, forums or libraries and door-to-door um, uh, -door organizing, et cetera. So it's, it's shifted. It's shifted digitally, telephonically, um, and more, including a recent notification through our uh, Notify NYC messaging um, that our uh, emergency management office has been utilizing at this uh, moment of emergency in our city. But this is a thing that everybody, regardless of their, you know, they don't need to, you don't need to leave your house. If you have a phone, if you have a computer, you can, um, you can participate in the census. You can visit my2020census.gov or call 1-844-330-2020 or 1-844-468-2020 for Spanish language um, and participate in the census. And, you know, we, there's so many things we're all wondering and great questions you asked about what resources are available for folks. And the census decides a lot of that. The census decides every 10 years how many people live in a particular area and therefore how much money should the federal government be dispersing to that area for things like education and healthcare and transportation and infrastructure, all of these things that sort of make or break our ability to, to uh, make sure we're meeting the needs of communities. And on top of that, uh, advocacy at the federal level through representation in Congress gets decided. So the census at this moment should be acutely critical for all of us. We should feel like it's a way to exercise our power um, to really make clear that we're here and that we need the support of our federal government. And we need it now. We need it for the next 10 years. So I encourage all New Yorkers to participate if you haven't already. Um, and if you have, spread the word. Make sure all of your digital networks, your friends, your family, your neighbors know how critical this is, that now is the time to act. Now is the time to complete the census and that it's confidential and it cannot be shared with anybody, including immigration enforcement or, or police or your landlord. And so everybody should feel secure that it's a moment to raise your voices and get counted. And there's no citizenship question. 
And there is no citizenship question. You know, this was a battle fought by us, by the state, by so many others to ensure that there would be no citizenship question on the census. It isn't there. There isn't a question about immigration or immigration status. And so we want uh, folks to know that you can, with increased confidence, know that, but also that your information cannot be shared under the highest levels of law in our country. And so uh, it's, it's secure and safe. Great. Well, Vita Mostofi, Commissioner of the Mayor's Office of Immigrant Affairs, thank you for joining CityWatch. Thank you so much for having me. To find out more about Immigrant Heritage Week programs or resources for immigrants whose health or jobs have been impacted by the coronavirus, visit nyc.gov immigrants. You are listening to WBAI 99.5 FM's CityWatch, streaming live at wbai.org. I'm your host, David Brand joined by my co-host Jeff Simmons and news correspondent Celeste Katz-Marston. Perhaps no one is more vulnerable to the coronavirus and COVID-19 than New York's homeless population. The homelessness crisis has been worsening for the last two decades, and now hundreds of thousands of New Yorkers live in shelters, on the streets, or in unstable housing situations like apartments or illegal basement conversions where their names don't appear on a lease. For the second half of our show, we're going to focus on how the coronavirus has exacerbated an already staggering problem in New York City. Here's news correspondent Celeste Katz-Marston with the latest installment in her series, New York in Crisis, WBAI's Coronavirus Diary. You're listening to WBAI New York. I'm Celeste Katz-Marston. New York is the epicenter of the coronavirus pandemic sweeping the planet. WBAI is collecting the stories of New Yorkers fighting their way through the storm. This is New York in Crisis, WBAI's Coronavirus Diary. My name is Juan Galloway. I am president and CEO of New York City Relief, which is a mobile outreach to people struggling with homelessness. I've been working with people experiencing homelessness for 17 years, and in all those years, I've never seen anything like the um, level of desperation, hunger, uh, lack of resources, and nowhere to run for those who are most vulnerable to the uh, COVID-19 virus. The COVID-19 pandemic has really served as a black light to expose uh, an issue that was already an utter disaster, which is the largest homeless population in the nation in New York City. We are a mobile outreach uh, that goes to multiple, seven different locations around the New York City metro area every week. And we serve soup, bread, hot chocolate. We give out socks. And that draws in hundreds of people uh, to get something to eat. But then we help them with the long-term help, like shelter, rehabilitation, job training, medical care. But primarily during this pandemic, we have been having to focus on essential services, meaning food, because many of the soup kitchens around New York City have shut down because they're volunteer uh, run or they're run by retirees or people that were not able to cope with the, um, you know, the health and safety protocols. Typically, we might serve around 400 meals in a day, but what we've seen is double the amount, uh, up to 850 servings uh, meals in one day. We've seen lines around the block, down the corner. It's amazing. I've never seen anything like it in all my years. To protect the people that we're serving, we had to make sure that, first of all, our volunteers and our staff had safety equipment, uh, masks, gloves, disinfecting surfaces. We space people out in line by six feet between each person when they're waiting for food. We provide hand washing or sanitizing stations uh, for those who are on the streets. We also provide flyers uh, and literature uh, to help them understand how to prevent the virus because they're not able to watch the news at home. They have no home. Um, we also have been giving out paperwork uh, with lists of resources like the other places they can get food in the city, places they can get showers. And there's not that many uh, places they can get medical care. Many are elderly and many have compromised immune systems. And so we're trying to connect them to those vital resources to keep them alive. When the pandemic hit, most of our volunteers 
actually canceled on us, which is understandable, uh, you know, taking health precautions. But what I was really touched by was the many volunteers who stepped up. Um, not as many as we usually have, but I had an elderly woman who is very, I've known her for many years. She's been a volunteer for many years with us and she's, um, she's very poor herself and just a step away from homelessness, but she shows up every week. There she was, um, handing out socks to people and giving them, you know, a kind word and encouraging word. And so I love it when I see New Yorkers show up uh, and put themselves in harm's way, potentially put their health at risk to help someone who is definitely worse off and needs a friend in time of trouble. Juan Galloway is president and CEO of New York City Relief. Stay tuned for more installments of New York in Crisis, WBAI's Coronavirus Diary and for the latest news and updates on COVID-19. Thank you, Celeste. That was a powerful piece, and if you want to hear the rest of the series, visit WBAI.org. One of New York City's leading advocates for the rights of homeless New Yorkers has been former council speaker Christine Quinn, the current president and CEO of the organization WIN, or Women in Need. Quinn has a unique perspective as a respected leader in city government, a potential mayoral candidate in 2021, and the head of a nonprofit providing shelter and services for thousands of homeless families. She spoke with me Thursday about how the city needs to step up right now to support New Yorkers who are experiencing homelessness. Former Speaker Christine Quinn, welcome back to City Watch. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. So tens of thousands, potentially hundreds of thousands of New York City residents experience homelessness in some form each year. People who experience homelessness are particularly vulnerable to infectious disease because they lack a stable place to stay and to isolate. They have chronic illnesses at a disproportionate rate compared to the general population. They often live in close quarters with many other people, whether that's in a shelter or crammed together in an apartment, what they call doubled up. Your organization, WIN, serves families experiencing homelessness throughout New York City. Tell us about how the coronavirus is affecting these families and how WIN is stopping the spread. So we in Women in Need, we are the largest provider of shelter to homeless families with children in New York City. And it's important to note that although when we typically visualize the homeless, we think of single individuals who we see on the street, 70 percent of those who are homeless are families with children. Twenty five percent of everyone in shelter last night, still at record highs, was six years of age or younger. There's more children in shelter than there are seats in Madison Square Garden. So that's the reality of homelessness before this pandemic. It was really the face of a a four-year-old child. Now, we've now entered into this new crisis in the lives of those experiencing homelessness. Now, if you set the stage for this, we were having trouble moving people out of shelter before the pandemic because the vouchers for rental vouchers and other resources the city has are substandard as it relates to the what you can really buy in the retail market. So now a couple of things are happening. Uh, as it relates to families, we are focused now in the shelter on isolation, in quarantine, on taking care of those people who are not well of protecting the staff, protecting the clients, implementing social distancing, distributing of PPEs to the shelter workers, setting up virtual learning, et cetera. So all of that is happening, and we're doing it in a way with reduced staffing, one-third staffing to keep staff and clients healthy, and a focus on how to help our clients deal with this period of time. So, for example, we've been working on donations of books and stuffed animals and crayons and paper and coloring books. So as our families have to stay in their units, their apartments, they will have things to do and things to kind of calm them as we all need and allay their fears. But remember, Any person who is in a homeless shelter, any family, has been through a high level of trauma, being evicted, fleeing domestic violence, the two leading causes of homelessness for families. Those are huge traumas. Going to two or three schools a year, that is a trauma. Uh, uh, 
dealing with poverty to the point of eviction. That is a trauma. So our families enter this new trauma we're all going into in a more vulnerable place. They're very easy to be triggered about the, about their past by what's happening now. So yes, our work is to make sure everyone's getting fed, that everyone who's isolating is getting you know everything they need from garbage pickup to laundry. It's also to make sure that our clients are weathering this with the support they need given their history of trauma. And now, I, I want to yeah. go back something you said about the vouchers in, in a moment, but just how many people in your shelters are currently sick? How many people have tested positive for COVID-19 or are experiencing COVID-like uh, illness? Right. So we um, uh, we have 5,000 clients a night, about 25 to 2,700 of whom are children, just to put it in perspective. We have, I'm almost afraid to say, and I'm knocking wood, been very lucky in that uh, we've had very only a handful of clients test positive, and every and we've had about a dozen or so clients self quarantine or isolate. All of them not you know seeing their symptoms subside and come out after 14 days healthy and well. So we've been very very lucky in that regard. I want to say those folks who are on self quarantine or those folks who have tested positive. They've been real troopers. They are in their units. They're not coming out. They're isolating. We're bringing them food. We're picking up their garbage. They're really following the rules. And overall in the shelter, people are socially distancing. They're not kind of sitting in the playground together anymore or that kind of a a thing in the courtyard. People are really, really taking this seriously, the people in our shelter who are experiencing homelessness. And I think that's making a difference about why. How are staff members doing? The staff members are doing equally well. Uh, you know, a couple of people, uh, some uh, uh, self-quarantining, but so far, you know, very few numbers of actual positive and anybody who's had to self-quarantine because someone in their life was sick, uh, also coming back after 14 days in the clear. So we have been lucky, thank God. I, again, I we tragically had a, a, a staff worker who lost uh, her husband. We just had a staff member last night who lost uh, two staff members who lost, lost their aunts. So I don't want to say this has been easy uh, at all. And there's a real human toll there. And we all know that's harder by not being able to biz- visit. It's also harder because shelter workers are essential workers. So they're out there every day doing what they have to do. But we have been, not to minimize, luckier than, than many and maybe luckier than we should have been. Are people able to move out of shelters right now? Well, yes, and we've had a couple of move outs. Uh, the pause initiative of the governor is not what prevents move outs. What prevents move outs is that, you know, we have a system in place where you, have, you go look at, understandably, you go look at an apartment. We go with clients to look at apartments. There has to be inspections of the apartments before families move in, which is a good thing to make sure they're not, you know, in desperation moving into some place that is just too substandard and not not healthy. Um, Their city has really not set up a process to do that virtually. There have been a couple of virtual tours and virtual viewings, but they've not pivoted uh, uh, the process from a face-to-face to a virtual one, soup to nuts. And in, in the letter we sent to uh, uh, the administration about changes that need to be made right now, though that is one of the things we've called for, institute a fully virtual viewing a system for uh, uh, apartment viewings and also set up a virtual inspection system. The city needs to do that. They're going to need to do that through the rest of this pandemic. And then after it's over for a while, too, as people kind of work through their ability to go outside and do things. That needs to happen. We could be having more move outs, not as much as you would regularly. Right. But more move outs if that was happening. Another thing you've been advocating for is uh, to change housing vouchers. And so. People who live in apartment of homeless services shelters can qualify for rental vouchers that pay the cost of a year's rent directly to a landlord up front. Uh, a lot of landlords won't accept these vouchers, whether that's because of discrimination or because of the value of the voucher. So you and many other advocates have urged the city to increase the value. What, 
Talk about the problems with the vouchers right now. Sure. And, you know, a, a crisis always exposes where a crisis always exposes the weakest links. Mm. It, it exposes where the seams are coming apart. So prior to the pandemic, we at WIN, with the support of, you know, close to 50 other organizations and the support of 40 plus members of the city council, including the general welfare chair, Stephen Levin, and the speaker of the city council, Corey Johnson, we've been advocating for a piece of legislation that would take the rental vouchers from where they are now, which is about, you know, give or take $1,800, $1,900, take them to what's called 100% of fair market rent. That would open it up to 2000 a little over 2000 mm. Why does that matter? Right now, the amount of vouchers equals the area median rent of eight neighborhoods in the city of New York. Eight. Only eight, you mean that? Only eight. Yeah. Only eight. When we up it to the 100 percent, it opens up countless neighborhoods in the city of New York where that equals the fair market rent. That's a huge difference because right now we've given people these vouchers and said, go with God. These are going to get you in an apartment. Mm -hmm. And they don't. We've, in fact, lied to people. We have the ability to change the amount of the voucher to make it just a little bit higher and give people real ability to compete in the market. You know, we've talked a lot during the pandemic of how terrible it is that the, you know, New York hospital system is competing against the Idaho hospital system, you know, and by, and all other different examples of that. Right now, we've sent homeless people out into the market to compete against other poor people with not enough resources to ever find an apartment. That needed to stop before this pandemic. This pandemic, again, crises show the weak links. This program is a weak link. And every time you give somebody a voucher, you are basically giving them a piece of hope. But you know what's worse than giving people no hope is giving them false hope. And that's what we have done in these vouchers. So that needs to be changed immediately. The administration could do it on their own and then have the council codify it right after, or the council can do it as soon as they're back in session. I was very gratified that Speaker Johnson, in his response to the mayor's budget, raised voucher, raised raising the voucher uh, as, his, as a main top priority. Now, you might say that's a lot of money. You know what? It is some money. That's true. It's a couple of million dollars more the first year and more the second year. But it will save the city money in short order, mm -hmm. because as we move more people out of shelter, we can move people out of these decrepit, unserviced hotels that people are languishing in, reduce the amount of money we are spending on hotels and eventually reduce the amount of money we are um, spending on shelters as well. I want to ask you a, a more basic question. Uh, why don't more people care about the homelessness crisis? This has been going on for decades and it's been getting worse. And as you mentioned, it's particularly affecting families with children, especially families of color throughout the city. Yes. They're the political will to do more and actually solve this crisis. Well, look, I think more and more and more in my time at Wynn that New Yorkers care deeply about the homeless. Last year, we did a poll and found very, very supportive numbers of people who were not only concerned about the homeless, 90% of the people in the poll felt we weren't doing enough for the homeless, but over 60% said, I would take a shelter in my own neighborhood. So I think that the consciousness and the concern is there. What is also there is a very, very loud minority of people who don't want shelters, a very vocal minority of people who are nimby and unkind. Mm -hmm. We need to keep our consciousness and our concern growing 
verbalized, amplified, to push elected officials to stop listening to the scary vocal minority and listen to the vast amount of New Yorkers. This is not a new problem, but it is a problem we have to solve. We had to solve it before the crisis. We have to solve it now because it's not uh, hyperbole to say the number of people in the shelters will swell after the crisis is over because so many people are going to be unemployed. So what would you do right now if you were the mayor to stop the growth of homelessness and to get people into stable housing? Well, one, I would listen to the calls as it relates to single homeless people, not my specialty, but single homeless people, to move them temporarily into hotels. So they're not in congregate settings and they're certainly not on the street. That would be one. Two, I would make all of the changes around vouchers that we and over 30 groups have called for in our letter. Uh, virtual tours, virtual inspections, up the vouchers to 100% of fair market rate all right already, and um, make some administrative changes. So if you have your eligible letter, just let's keep renewing it, because otherwise it's going to expire in 90 days and we're going to have to go through a renewal process. Forget that. Just keep renewing them automatically given the crisis. Then I would also begin planning for the day after the crisis and the day after the uh, non-eviction uh, 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 setup expires. We're going to need to have more places that are appropriate to house the homeless during all of that as well. But no one's thinking ahead. No one thought ahead to where we are now, and no one's thinking ahead to where we're going to go. And one of the critical things about managing as a crisis is you have to have a team of people also continuing the day-to-day -day operations and a team of people thinking about what happens after the crisis. Well, let's let's think ahead here, and we have just a, a couple more moments. But will you run for mayor in 2021? You know, as you can tell, I'm laser-like focused on running win now more than ever, given these new challenges. And I really want to make sure when we come out of this crisis, the country, the city, the state will struggle. People who have not been unemployed before will be unemployed. So I want to make sure Wynn is there to help support those people, but also that the people presently in Wynn shelters don't get left behind. Well, former Council Speaker Christine Quinn, President and CEO of Wynn, Women in Need, thank you for joining us on City Watch. Thank you, David. Take care and be safe. That was former City Council Speaker Christine Quinn, the President and CEO of Wynn, or Women in Need. She's also a potential candidate for mayor in 2021, but as you heard there, there's no commitment on that just yet. For the final segment of our show today, I wanted to get the perspective of someone who has experienced homelessness and who champions the rights of people experiencing homelessness today. I spoke with Felix Guzman, an advocate and organizer with the social justice organization Vocal New York. Guzman is often found lobbying the city council and state legislature or demonstrating at rallies to improve the conditions for his fellow New Yorkers. Guzman discussed his own experience and talked about what New York City needs to do right now to take homelessness seriously and end it once and for all. Felix Guzman, welcome to City Watch on WBAI. Thank you for joining us. Thank you. Thank you. I appreciate the opportunity to speak. Thank you. Felix, you are a fierce advocate for the rights of homeless New Yorkers. How did you become an advocate? It's kind of ironic, actually. Um, at one point in time, uh, the building that... Uh, I now reside in once again, um, was turned into a cluster site. So uh, basically that means that when the apartments become empty, the landlord rents them willy-nilly to the city for uh, to provide emergency housing for families, and single, families uh, single adults and families, but there's no aftercare on site provided, and it just basically turned into a free-for-all. At that point in time, I was actually... <laughs> Uh, working as a mental health advocate and housing specialist and in an abusive relationship. And so you became homeless, in other words. Yeah. Uh, due to the building being what it was, I lost job after job. And um, due to not having any uh, family support around the uh, the situation, both the building being uh, turned to a shelter and the abusive relationship, uh, it caused a strain between family members. And I eventually ended up being kicked out. Um, again, uh, that's a surreal experience where, you know, like what was once stable becomes, you know, a free for all. And uh, in, 
imagine trying to make sense of, you know, people going up and down the fire escape when you're trying to sleep, broken mailboxes, you know, people, you know, broken lobby doors, broken, you know, everything and not knowing who your neighbors are and uh, the frustration, the insanity of it all, the trauma of it all um, just uh, was a situation that required um, more uh, more attention, but also more effort in helping to navigate um, what was happening. And the city, for what it was worth, told me if I was having difficulty with uh, my living situation that I should consider going into a shelter. So um, as a result of becoming homeless, uh, for self-care reasons, I had to get involved in something that kept me safe, sane, and um, active. And I find that uh, everything social justice has been going on for decades. And um, there's always room for advocacy and activism. You have a very important perspective, especially as the city contends with the coronavirus crisis. I'm wondering, yes. how, do you, how do you think the city has so far responded to address the spread of the coronavirus among homeless New Yorkers? I think that the city is facing a problem that that um, is so far from normal that um, there is no there's no one one solution for it. So um, unless we really start to uh, put put people in better positions upon departure from jail or prison, and also like uh, make shelters safer, cleaner, uh, then we're we're just basically talking about uh, shuffling shuffling papers and uh so for what it is for what it's looking like right now the city is doing something however um this this issue is probably uh going to um continue for a while as the uh, street homeless have no um no resources and in order to isolate you have to you know be a certain distance from people six feet yeah. And that's not happening in shelters and prisons and jails. And um, I, I really don't know how to answer that question. What do people who are experiencing homelessness need? Uh, definitely, we definitely need um, access to quality everything. I mean, from healthcare to mental health to uh, you know to proper to proper to proper shelter. Again, the, the the reason why the shelters don't work is because it's a it's, it's a literal free for all. And that's something that not everyone, um, well, people choose to ignore the fact that um, uh, people are dying in the street because they won't go into shelter. So that needs to be addressed at the, at, at, at the forefront of everything, that people would rather not have a roof over their head. People are street homeless during this COVID crisis because they, they do not want to go into the shelter. Like for that to be the... The narrative for some people means that, like, um, that is a serious uh, question of what exactly are we doing when we are talking about shelters and housing people in them. Is there enough access to affordable housing for people who are experiencing homelessness? <laughs> there's, there's no, uh, there's very little access to affordable housing for anyone, but especially the homeless. I mean, uh, we're talking about a population that, um, doesn't have access to a lot of things, you know, uh, in order to actually get access to affordable housing, you have to have some sort of, uh, you know, that, that the, at the most basic, you have to have some kind of income. A lot of the homeless are um, unable to, to work due to, you know, disabilities, to uh, not being able to find employment, not having the proper paperwork, not having a stable address. So, um, you know, at the, at the for, you know, with that, we need to actually uh, look at, the barriers to affordable housing, you know, the credit score, the um, the criminal the criminal background that'll come up in a in a, in a background check, and um, it's to say there's a lot of things there that um, for the normal average person are a lot more uh, you know time you know exponentially rougher to do. I mean, like shelters aren't aren't like um, vacation spots at least the way i see it that they're not meant to really be more than just beds uh because the opportunities to exit shelter are very i don't want to say non-existent but they're very few and far between what would you tell people 
uh, in New York City and the surrounding areas who aren't taking this crisis seriously, who aren't taking the homelessness crisis in New York City and the area seriously. I think realizing that, that, that literal, you know, like I am, I am a moment away from being homeless has to be like the reality for everyone. Like, you know, there are reasons why, you know, people have stayed homeless for, for a, for a long time because of the lack of, you know, the, the lack of just, you know, like recognition of dignity and humanity and who they are. We just have a, a few more moments. Um, so just wanted to have, how can we learn more about your work and about Vocal New York? Uh, so Vocal New York is actually a, an amazing organization. They do a lot of advocacy around, uh, uh, without um, giving the full death of it. Uh, they do stuff around uh, harm reduction, um, civil rights uh, reforms, uh, homelessness reforms, as well as um, as well as other uh, other efforts that they're doing to try and actually bring more compassion and dignity to those that are, are disadvantaged. How can we learn about Vocal? Go to vocal-ny.org, uh, um, and from there you can actually learn about the different um, movements and uh, the different unions that they ha- actually have. Um, as far as me, uh, you can, as far as I go, you can actually uh, find me on uh, Facebook, Twitter, uh, and um, what's the other one? Instagram at Felix Guzman 81. Uh, and, um, you know, I, I just hope that people are, are willing and um, concerned enough that uh, upon hearing this little, uh, little um, interview that they understand that the homeless are homelessness is um, not too far removed from everyday life, and I think that this crisis uh, should be a call to action for everyone that recognizes the need to preserve um, one's humanity, dignity, and our compassion and kindness. Felix Guzman, thank you for joining us on City Watch. Thank you. That was my interview with Felix Guzman, an organizer with Vocal New York and an advocate for the rights of New York City residents experiencing homelessness. You've been listening to City Watch on WBAI 99.5 FM and streaming live at WBAI.org. I'm your host, David Brand. We had a jam-packed Easter Sunday show this evening, and I would like to thank our many guests, Brooklyn Diocese Bishop Nicholas DiMarzio, Mayor's Office, of Immigrant Affairs Commissioner Bita Mostofi, former council speakers Christine Quinn, the current president and CEO of WIN, Women in Need, and vocal New York organizer Felix Guzman. Thank you as well to my co-host Jeff Simmons, our news correspondent Celeste Cass Marston, and our engineer Max Schmid. Please be sure to tune in next week when we will be joined by even more amazing guests. If you missed any part of the show, visit us at WBAI.org, go to Programs, and then Archives. The show will be up in about 10 minutes. Thank you for joining us today. Stay safe. Stay healthy. Wash your hands. We're all in this together. Happy Easter. Thank you.